Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast has been in association with Charles Tirrett over the course of this Ashes series. If you want to start the year off by wearing something sharp, Charles Tirrett has a collection of smart casual menswear, perfect for cricketers, professional and novice alike. So it finishes 4-0 and I think we all believe that that probably flatters England a little bit. A collapse of 56 for 10 felt like a rather apt way for the series to end as Australia won their 13th home Ashes test in 15. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today is the magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, the editor-in-chief of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, and the managing editor of Wisden.com, Ben Gardner. We'll talk about uh, the fallout from Hobart, Virat Kohli's resignation as India Test skipper, South Africa series win over India, and much more. Um, We've had loads of great questions sent in today, so we'll be basing the show a little bit more around those than we usually would. But first, let's head to Mark Butcher to hear his reaction to what happened over in Hobart. Butch, you were, you labelled England's defeat pathetic on BT Sport. Was that second innings collapse as bad as you've seen from an England team? <laughs> um, well, I did, normally you'd be able to just immediately say yes, wouldn't you? But I mean, there have been that many um, in, the, in the recent past that, um, that, uh, that you have to sort of stop yourself and think. But I think Potentially, that was as bad as it as bad as it gets. Um, you know, side uh, devoid of confidence. Yes, at the back end of a long and, and, and bruising trip. Yes, COVID bubbles. All of those things. Um, you know, notwithstanding, it was still it was still pretty spineless, wasn't it? I mean, that's kind of and and it kind of highlighted a lot of the all, nearly all of the points that have come come up over the over the past um, over the past year. To 18 months or so about England's batting, um, you know, technical problems, decisions, you know, decisions made on um, on, on the, the best place to sort of withstand in order to withstand high quality bowling. Um, you know, I mean, Christ, if, if there's ever been a better illustration of what we're talking about in terms of in terms of uh, standing on your off stump 
um, then Oli Pope's two dismissals in that game. I don't know. I don't know what is. You know, you nick one defending eight stump and then get bowled around your leg, <laughs> bowled around your legs middle stump. It's just, um, you know, and this is from a lad who can play. You know, um, yeah. so it, it was it was pretty horrendous. And you know, there's a, there's obviously always a bit of emotion knocking around at whatever time in the morning that was, having been up all night. But um, but I think I can stand by ghastly and pathetic as being relatively fair. Yeah, I was wondering, do you think we've got worse at judging batters in this country? So like 20 years ago, or even more recently, when batters came through, they generally had fairly stable defences and players who stood out were the guys who could, you know, you know, it was a prerequisite that they had good, solid foundations in their game. And now we're almost swooned off our feet by some of the shots that young batters can play. And the solid foundations aren't quite there yet. And do we presume that these problems are more fixable than they are? A lot, a lot of the way ex-pros have been talking about Pope and Crawley has got all the talent in the world, make a couple of quick fixes and they'll be okay. Is it as simple as that? Well, I mean, you know, first and foremost, you have to, you have to make, a, make a, a judgment on your own game as, as, as to what needs fixing and how you go about it. Um, you know, I think there's been, there's been an enormous amount of denial of, around, around a, lot of the, a lot of the issues. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's, it's all very well and good um, having the sort of the, the technical capabilities, but also the mentality is, is required um, to, to want to um, soak up lots of deliveries and to, to battle through and make ugly runs, get yourself here, bat, you know, potentially about 100, 150 balls for, for 50 or 60. I mean, um, and, and those types of things are not as easy to fix. It's not as simple, not as straightforward as hitting millions of balls and, and, uh, and, and sorting out your setup. So uh, look, there are, there are all kinds of issues here. Um, that aren't uh, that aren't uh, uh, sort of fast fixes, but I do think with with some of the more with some of the more sort of agile and um, you know blessed uh, hand eye coordinated batters that with a, with a bit of will on their part and a bit of um, expert um, judgment from from whoever it is that they trust to sort them out that those problems are not unfixable. The problem, I guess, uh, becomes. Um, how far the, the confidence gets eroded before you, you end up with a mental scar that, that makes it impossible for you to make runs at that level, um, no matter what happens. Um, and I hope we aren't there with, with either of those two mentioned yet, but we might not be far away. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we saw going back to sort of my era or the eras that I straddled, you know, the, the, the first examples you come up with around percussion here, can't you? Um, you know, two guys with all the, all the ability in the world who, for one reason or another, didn't kind of make the transition to make regular regular contributions at test match level. Um, and a lot of people would point to, um, you know, being picked and dropped and picked and dropped and messed around. I mean, that doesn't apply nowadays, does it? If you get picked um, on the back of ability, and that, let's not forget these two guys are very young, the two, you know, the, the two that we're talking about at the moment. Um, you know, you tend to get large amounts of test matches on the bounce to give these guys the uh, the opportunity to kind of to to, to reach their potential um, I was thinking about this funnily enough just this morning that you know w- with older players when you pick somebody from the age of I don't know say say 29 and upwards you kind of expect the expectation is that they will go in and, and contribute straight away because you, you don't have the time to to allow them to bed in so you're looking for immediate results when you pick older players so they're easier to drop if they have a if they have a rough old time of it think Joe Denley, I wonder why that's just popped into my head suddenly. Um, you know, Dowd Milan recently, 
Um, me, if you go go back all, all the way to, to the time when I played, you know, if I hadn't have had a decent Ashes in 2001 when I got recalled to the side, I wouldn't have played after that. You know, they would have gone back to the younger players. But with the older guys, it's incumbent upon them to keep their place. And with the younger guys, it's incumbent upon them to, to show that they're improving um, and, um, you know, and, and back up the investment that is being made in their in their futures and, and in England's future. Mm. I mean, if you if you were Ashley Giles or Chris Silver, what would you be thinking about how you'd manage Ollie Pope? The West Indies tour isn't that far away. There's no first-class cricket in between now and then. And it's interesting you bring up that comparison with Rambrakash in particular. Ollie Pope's now played 23 test matches. He averages 28. Yeah. Um, he's got 100 from 23 tests, which is a pretty similar ratio to what Ramps had in test cricket. Um, everyone yeah. talked about him as a future England you know, 100 test banker uh, two years ago. It's not happened. It's, he, the runs have completely fallen off a cliff. How do you manage him in the short term? Well, I mean, if he didn't go to the West Indies, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, because I think, I think in the same way we've had this discussion about somebody like Dom Sibley, who took the decision to take himself away to go and sort out um, some technical issues. I think it would probably do Ollie Pope just as much good to, uh, to, to go behind closed doors and figure out exactly what it is that he is trying to do um, with, his, with his technique. And then come back at a time when it, you know, when he's got runs runs behind him, and and uh, the spotlight isn't quite so fierce. I don't think that would do him any harm at all. He's a baby. He's so young, as is as is Zach Crawley. Um, and you know, funny you should ask, what would Silverwood and and Giles and all that? Well, I mean, it might not be their decision to make, to be honest with you. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it might be that it might be that by then a decision has been made. Um, you know, they get they get a hotline to Gary Kirsten or someone like that and go, come, we, we need we need new eyes on all of this. Um, and somebody else can come in and make a and make a call as to what to do. Hmm. Are, are, are some players just better at working on their own games? Because, you know, I'm just trying to imagine what that process is like. You're learning in indoor schools in the winter with, you know, balls that don't do as much you know bowlers who don't do as much you can almost lie yourself into a false sense of security that whatever you're doing is working and then you know you get into the middle and you're facing you know someone bowling 88 miles per hour the ball's doing a bit it's a completely different game yeah I mean that's which is kind of I'm glad you've asked me that because that's kind of part of the reason that all us old dinosaurs have been going on about sort of fundamentals of technique is that you can't, you don't replicate, you don't ever replicate sort of, you know, the, the, the moving ball or particular scenarios when you're practicing. What you do is you give yourself a basis um, of, of, a, of, a, of a method which will be able to cope when these extremes come about or at least give you a chance when these extremes come about. And, 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 all, and, and the point that we've been banging on about over and over and over again is that they're giving themselves they're making it more difficult for themselves before the balls even come out of the bowler's hand. You know, so when, the, when things get, get really extreme, then it becomes almost impossible. You know, your, your, your technique and your, your, your sort of setup is, is there to help you, not to make life more difficult. And, and I and now Sir Alistair Cook and, and all of the other old blokes who you can dismiss if you like, um, have, all, have all pretty much said the same thing. And it's not because we think we were better in our day. It's far from that. Absolutely far from that. It's just, it's just because, it's just because we, we understood that there's a kind of, you know, the, the reason why things have been done a, a certain way over a long period of time is because it gives you the best chance. Then your natural ability, your mental application 
all of these other things, um, you know, are things that you put on top of um, solid foundations. The foundation itself doesn't make you the runs. Um, you also need uh, need that ability, that hunger, the desire, all of the rest of it as well. Um, and finally, you mentioned Chris Silverwood and, and Ashley Giles. There will be some listeners, there might be many listeners, who will be comparing this to, you know, the, the aftermath of a England football tournament disgraceful early exit. Uh, and, you know, when England lost against Iceland in, in 2016 in the Euros there, Roy Hodgson, he sent in his reg- resignation uh, that, that evening. People will be wondering, yeah. why, why hasn't that happened here? It, it, it doesn't get any worse than this. Chris Silverwood's been in charge now for two and a bit years, and w- there are all the mitigating circumstances that you mentioned at the top. But at the end of the day, players haven't improved. You know, I'd be interested to, to hear Ashley Giles' answer to the question, what, what has Silverwood done right in the last year? Um, the reason why I ask you this is because the noise is coming out of Australia from journalists, I think has changed a little bit since the off the Melbourne. I don't think it is now taken for granted that Silverwood will leave his post. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the grandest of ironies would be that the, 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 the head coach whose, whose position, whose future is more uncertain at the moment is that of Justin Langer. Yeah. Um, you know, he just won the World T20 and, and smashed England in the ashes. Um, Look, I mean, all, all of those things, if, for example, all of the decision-making that had, that had gone on, re-resting and rotating players, re-various um, selectorial decisions, re-the um, decision from above Chris Silverwood to make him not only head coach, but also um, chief selector after they ditched Ed Smith, um, their, the decision-making around the, the teams that were played or not played during the summer um, against New Zealand uh, in the lead-up to, to the India series, all of which were described as great preparation for the Ashes. If, if none of those things had taken place, and if every four-year cycle wasn't a, um, you know, a, a lead-up to, to an away Ashes series, then you could say, well, all right, you know, perhaps all of, these, all of the other extenuating circumstances kind of excuse what's happened but unfortunately all of that stuff happened all of that stuff was was discussed at great length all of that stuff was used as reasoning behind um you know players coming into the side playing one test match and then disappearing off for a rest um was used for you know the reasons reasons why rotation was so important why broad and anderson couldn't play in the same team at the same time all of this was because we were going to go down to the ashes and be the best prepared um, you know, England team that's ever ever gone down there, and we were going to retain them. You know, mm. that was the that was the remit. That was the the job, the drop, not the job description, but that was what that that was the the uh, the manifesto. And you know, it should have been five nil, shouldn't it? I mean, let's let's be let's be frank. Um, you know, a, a, a declaration here or a rain shower there, and and we'd be looking at yet another five. Um, a team that hasn't made three hundred uh, at ten attempts. Um, you know, didn't manage to bat a hundred overs in in a couple of the test matches. I mean, it's just horrendous. Um, ben, you watched pretty much every ball of that test. Um, what did you What did you make of that? Uh, it's kind of a, a greatest hit, if that's if that's the right word, of, of wearing them and kind of going wrong over the past year or so. I mean, it's funny because it started kind of brightly it was a, a green wicket which you know everyone's saying that's the, been the problem with county cricket that the week's been too green it's like now England had one and they kind of had a chance to to show how how used to them they were 
Uh, they had Australia, what, 12 for three early on? And then uh, Wokes, I, I think obviously the batting is the focus, but we'll talk a bit about, more about Wokes a bit later on. But that was a very poor spell to follow up. Wood was also quite expensive. And then Australia kind of took the game away in 300 uh, and a bit. Looked, just looked like way, way too many. And then the batting was like everything that people have been saying uh, just uh, reeled out again. I mean, you had Pope beaten on both sides, not just of his bat, but of his body. He was sort of playing at one, what, about seventh or eighth stump in the first innings uh, and then bowled behind his legs. And that's just that those are the, when, when you're batting on off stump, those are, you should be able to hit the balls that are on your stumps and you should be able to leave outside and neither of those that he was completely flummoxed both times. I mean, and then it was just a farce by the end, wasn't it? You had Stokes pulling one out into the deep. You had everyone getting just playing wild shots at the end. I mean, and, you know, maybe if you're Ollie Robinson, he, you know, even he was supposed to be able to bat and he came to the side uh, getting bowled with one foot off the pitch. Uh, but then even like Woke just having like an absolutely wild slog and going to Boland. Uh, and because even even that four things has started kind of well, like England put on their best opening stand in the Ashes for eight years, home or away, uh, and then we're still 124. I don't think we should be celebrating that. Well, that one, <laughs> that's, 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 that, but, but like like they they kind of kind of it, it, like it and to, to go from that platform to just a horrendous capitulation again. Uh, I mean, I don't know if if from 68 all out. I don't know if anyone did have any sort of hope at all. I kind of I kind of did slightly I mean I kind of thought that maybe Australia had sort of taken their eye off it a little bit and that the target was like getting near to 200 and England have even though they never make 300 they have sometimes made 200 uh and then it bit <laughs> to, 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 to then fail so badly from there uh yeah it was it was it was just uh it was just awful basically um and I don't know it's, it's hard because after every game you're inclined to say that was the lowest point I don't know if that is worse than 68 at all out in Melbourne but I kind of think maybe it just is I mean it was 56 for 10 at the end of it which is pretty bad so yeah pretty mm. bad uh, Joe there was one major positive though Mark Wood was brilliant and he's bowled well throughout the series up possibly getting the rewards that he deserves but he got those rewards at Hobart that, that was genuinely fantastic to see because I think I looked I think he was averaging 42 heading into this test match which was such an unfair uh, stat for the, the energy and the, the kind of enthusiasm he'd put in um, and actually, I think we had a conversation in the office just on Friday. At what point do you just stop saying Mark Wood's unlucky and actually that he's not doing things right to take to take wickets? And I've always felt that he, he is an unlucky bowler. And um, you got a couple of lucky wickets in there, and they were completely deserved based on the on on, on what he'd put in. Um, so that was one uh, silver lining, I suppose. Although it's it's hard to take. Um, <laughs> that's not my overwhelming feeling. It has to be said. In answer to Ben, did did I have any hope? there at 60 odd for none no none, none at all and that's because you had 20 quid riding on it <laughs> yeah i just knew that wasn't going to happen i think one of the draining things about this series is one of the beauties of a test series particularly five test series and we don't get them very much these days is is the way they kind of undulate and and narratives develop and and change over the course of a series but this felt so well established right from the very start and every time you thought there might be something slightly different we just had the same thing happen again and it it was it made it hard to watch. It made it really hard to, I found personally, to stay invested because certainly by third, fourth, fifth test, we just knew what was going to happen. And and that's because in the England changing room, they knew what was going to happen. And, and you know that two wickets goes down, three wickets goes down, um, and then they all collapse in a heap. And, you know, well, I'm sure we're going to get onto this, but significant, significant change is needed. Otherwise, it's going to keep keep happening. Mm. Um, Phil, one one storyline that came to the fore, I guess, that's been there 
before in the series was Ollie Robinson's fitness. So despite having a pretty good series with the ball, England's bowling coach John Lewis spoke to the press at the end of the game, spoke to BT Sport, specifically calling out his fitness and saying it's, it's not good enough for test level. And Hugh asked, I just want to ask why it's taken the coaching staff this long to realise that his fitness and stamina needs to be improved. It was readily apparent in the summer against India when, as I recall, Shane Warne did a Sky Sports segment just on that. Why did it take him playing an Ashes series with the coaching staff to realise this? They've had half an off-season to work with him before the Ashes started. Isn't this seriously incompetent? I guess it's possible that the coaches have known this the entire time, but they got to a breaking point, I guess, that in this series that they felt that he wasn't looking after himself in the way that a test bowler should. I don't think... Uh, and There was a bit of, a bit of sniffiness around John Lewis saying what he said. Personally, I didn't think there was much wrong with it. Um, and I don't think Robinson would either... Uh, I was speaking to somebody who who did a long interview with him recently, um, which will come out in due course, and um, he said he was refreshingly honest about his own uh, his own not limitations, but his own naivety as an international cricketer. And he knows that there are certain things that he needs to do better, and one of them was the fitness. And this conversation was had before John Lewis came out publicly, so it's it's something that Robinson himself is conscious of. It's something clearly that the England management are increasingly concerned about. Um, and I think what you will see is is a kind of make or break six months for him uh, from here on in. Uh, is it indicative of a wider malaise? I think it might be a bit simplistic to, to, to throw it into that, that, that argument, really. I think, uh, I think Robinson clearly has problems of stamina across the, across the course of a test match. We've seen it. Um, you know that he was bowling off breaks in one of the test matches. He comes back and he knows himself. You can't you can't bowl what seventy mile an hour. You know, literally. I think one over was sixty nine on average MPH. You can't bowl that um, in, and get away with it in test level at test level. However, what he is is an extremely skillful bowler, and his record is is good. So if you are looking for tiny crumbs of comfort, then then Robinson has come through and and, and looked like he can take test wickets. Uh, it's it's frustrating, I suppose, that he seems to epitomise much of the the flabbiness, pun intended, around this team at the moment. Um, uh, I don't think they were helped with their preparation, but I, from what I've heard here and there, I don't think quite a few players weren't happy with their preparation either, the intensity of the preparation. There's been some murmurs regarding certain players' training routines individual training routines not being up to scratch these are the kinds of things that surface I think there was a piece in the Telegraph this morning by Nick Holt as well the inside story of of you know this horror tour well the headline just sums up sorry it's, it's fat shaming too much drinking and not enough talking the inside story of England's ashes disaster yeah yeah right so I mean you know Nick Holt's obviously right on right in there and he knows his stuff inside out and far closer to current setup than I am but I've heard similar things via other journalists privately as well um again what happens is rightly um the stench moves further up right and and then you have to look at look at the people who are calling the shots at the top um there is no administration that's not a reflection of its leader right um and this week again is another example of it well I'm not sure that the coach in particular can 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 keep running for much longer. 
I think uh, I I agree that I don't think there's a huge issue with John Lewis saying what he said and that we would be more annoyed if he was saying like, you know, trying to take the positives and that sort of thing. But I don't think he said it entirely selflessly and just with a view to sort of like giving Ollie Robinson a kick at the backside. I think it is notable how since sort of the, the second or third test when people were saying like, what are England's coaches even doing? Like, what is the point of having so many backroom staff? They've almost been kind of queuing up to kind of slag off members of England's team, basically. I mean, Thorpe did that very public evisceration of Burns' technique. Yeah, Giles' and- self-serving interview after Melbourne as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and- sorry, I would just say about Lewis and, and Robinson, though, they are very close as, mm-hmm. as uh, he is his man. You know, Robinson respects and likes Lewis from what, I, from what I've heard. They work very closely together. So possibly it's actually from a sense of closeness that he felt able to say what he said. Yeah, but I, I guess you, you, you either have two different possibilities. One is that they haven't been saying this behind closed doors and, and this is a probably general thing. And then it's like, what have they been doing? Or they have been saying behind closed doors and they just haven't been able to get the message across at all. And then you also wonder like, would sort of different coaches, would, would a good coach basically be able to sort of impress upon players the need to change and because that change isn't happening, as you say, you do have to focus quite heavily on those coaching staff. Mm. I guess it's a talking point because Robinson has done well when he's, when he's been fit and be able to bowl close to his maximum speed. And um, before we kind of get into the bigger questions, um, Andrew asked, where does Chris Wokes stand now? Um, Joe, we talked about Wokes being possibly an improved bowler with a Kookaburra and overseas going into the series. And on paper, he, He's uh, Phil mentioned it on last week's show. He's other than Mark Wood, he's probably in this quickest bowler out there. We've been talking about how he's been bowling in white ball cricket and how it's actually quite suited to the way he bowls as a white ball, quite similar to how you'd expect someone to be successful with a red ball as well. What what do you think's gone wrong there? Because he's had actually a worse series than he did in twenty seventeen eighteen. Yeah, I mean the honest answer is I don't know. I we I think we all sat around at the start of the series and thought he was going to be. Um, if not a kind of defining force in the series, certainly a really useful one for England and, and pivotal to the balance of the side. And but also really worth his place as a bowler alone. And and he hasn't been really. I mean, if it wasn't for his batting, I don't think he'd have he'd have played as much as he did. He just didn't really look threatening. I think he was potentially a little bit unlucky in the first test, thinking back to a few weeks now. But 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 really, he hasn't looked threatening. And actually. More concerning, he's he's looked easy to score off as the series has gone gone on, and and that hasn't generally been the case with with Wokes. All that said, I certainly wouldn't be binning him off as a Test cricketer by any means. His record in England is still uh, superb with bat and ball. Um, he's still in amongst England's bowlers. There there aren't many who can bat, and that is a problem. That's a problem home and away. Uh, so he continues to offer value there. Um, but it certainly means. I mean, when we come to the next away tour, there was that. There was the hope that Wokes had turned the corner as a, as a bowler overseas and he'd be able to offer more. And this series suggests that isn't the case and that we perhaps do need to think of him more as not a home specialist, but that he offers much more value at home and he's perhaps a bits and pieces backup player overseas. I mean, yeah, I, I was surprised because I fancied him to have a decent series um, on probably relatively flimsy evidence in, in reality. Uh there was a bit of blind faith going on initially and I hold my hands up there on that one. But it's also fine margins as well. And sometimes you know, if you take, say, a dozen wickets as a seamer, an England seamer in, in an Ashes in Australia, then that's not a bad return. Um, and the, the first moment, first morning, Brisbane, that catch on the half volley that Root took at first slip from Labashane's outside edge when Labashane was on no more than a handful and he went on to get 70-odd, uh, that then enabled them to to 
to move away from England in that game. And of course, England were 200 for two in, in the third innings. That kind of moment was very... If that had gone to hand, then he's in the series, he's got a big pole, and then he can start to maybe build build a little bit more on the back of that. Uh, he, he's not bulletproof, Chris Wokes. You know, he's a very level-headed character, but he will know himself that he's always been striving to prove something to himself away from home and... When those little early moments go against you, and you see it as what well, you saw it as well with with some of the batters as well, when those early early mo- when you lose those early moments, your confidence collapses, and then it becomes this sort of agonising horror that you, you just go further and deeper into yourself and more into your shell, and you were seeing it with with any number of players by the end of the series. It did seem surprising as well. I haven't I don't, haven't looked at the the Crickviz data that comes through, but it really looked like he wasn't getting much movement at all compared certainly to the Aussie seamers. Um, and that I, I don't know why that would be. I understand the cricketer doesn't move as much, but why is Wokes who who does get movement not getting as much as other bowlers? That's that seems odd, and maybe that's I don't know. Is that just a bit of lack of zip? Is is I don't know. I, I don't I don't look at him and see an obvious reason for why he hasn't been effective, but he just hasn't looked like taking wickets. Uh, yeah, I think by the end of the series. I think he, he just wasn't very accurate. He, he did, did bowl more bad balls than he, you expect Chris Wokes to bowl. And I think at the start of the series, and I remember Brisbane, I think he got probably a little bit too much criticism for how he bowled. I thought he actually did okay. Much of it was based on his white ball form. But as he said to me, and it's well known, white ball swings if you're lucky for two overs and then you're you're coming back to you know, knuckle balls and, and off cutters and break backs and this, that and the other and you're bowling wide of the crease and block hole stuff. So... That became his, his his every day. That became his weekly work, if you like, with a white kookaburra, knowing that it's not going to swing. Um, in England, and he, you know, you can present the Duke's ball, the proud seam and all the rest of it, and that will have been the ball that he'd have been bowling with in his own conditions for 10, 15 years. Uh, what he's found is not, he's not alone in English, you know, in the story of English medium fast seamers going out to Australia and... and and pulling up lame. Mm. Um, ben, just on finally on the Hobart Test match, England, England did get Australia twelve for three uh, early. But on then the they dropped Labuschagne for naught in the same passage of play. Yeah, crucial. That forty odds crucial in the context of the game. Absolutely, definitely. Um, but yeah, just wanted to get your take on another Travis Head hundred under pressure before the series started, and then at the Brisbane hundred he was kind of um, taking advantage of uh, a very tired England attack uh, on on that second evening whereas this was this was slightly different he was taking the attack to England uh, when the ball was doing a fair bit and it paid off massively yeah I guess he, he did get to come in just after the new ball bowls had gone but he, he was brilliant on that on that first day um, it was a proper sort of yeah counter punch uh, and actually it, he he was the first person to retake it back to Australia and then Labuschagne also like played well for that 40 odd before being bowled in ridiculous fashion uh, amazing how that's probably not even in the top five uh, <laughs> most embarrassing spiffs in the test match by the end. Um, no, I think think it was. Well, yeah, I guess. He I literally guess. landed flat on his face. That's true. That, yeah, I guess. But Rob's had a foot off the pitch. Any, anyway, um, but yeah, he, he he was really, really good. And I think he was one of those that England would have looked to uh, target before the series as a potential weak link in that batting order. And then actually, you know, when you look at, you know, Labuschagne averaging under 50 in the series, is a, England would have taken that as a small one before the series. Smith averaging 30 without 100. Warner averaging... 34 England if, if you know if you'd asked England if they could have all those before the series they would have been very grateful and, was it, uh, we, we sat around here and we talked about look 
we said there's no no questioning that Australia have got a strong core. Uh, it's the periphery players that look weak. So the, the strong players will do well and the weak players can be exploited. Naturally, I would say Australia's player of the series, I know, had took the award and probably fairly enough, given that there weren't a huge amount of runs scored. But then probably Boland and Cam Green. I mean, Cummins would have to be in the conversation as well. But I would say with those top three, and they're all they're fringe players. I mean, Boland couldn't have been much more than a, a fringe player. Um, whereas England, the big players didn't step up. And none of the players on the fringes who had the opportunity to make a name for themselves did that either. Mm. Let's get to the, the, the bigger questions. Um, Phil, you've already already said in this episode that you think Chris Silverwood should go. I think there'll be a lot of England fans listening to this who will be surprised that Chris Silverwood hasn't already gone. Uh, I think if this was a, a football team, the manager may would, may well have already been sacked or resigned by this point. Um, and, but we've talked, in the pod we did after the MCG test, we talked a lot about the underlying structural issues that England face. But I'm trying to get my head around why have England? Why have England's batters been this bad? Two openers averaging less than fifteen. Only Johnny Bairstow averaging more than thirty-three. We've seen teams overcome structural problems recently, deliver results, and sure the coaching staff is to blame to a certain degree. But why has it been this bad? And is that is that the head coach's fault? It's it's obviously not squarely anybody's fault. Uh, but Zach Crawley, all right, shoots of recovery. It was a really good seventy odd at. In the fourth test match, but Zach Crawley gone backwards, Ollie Pope gone dramatically backwards, uh, Hasip Hamid un- unpickable from here on in, certainly in the short term, probably in the long. Um, Johnny Bairstow came back into the side, didn't hasn't really made a run until that marvelous hundred. Fair play to him, and hopefully that that changes his story again in a positive way. Apart from Root, everybody's average has has fallen through the floor. Um, it, 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 he's not blameless. You can't be blameless. You can't be. It's it's a cap, It's a coach's job to go around the the traps and identify certain issues and find the right time to have a word and put the right people in place and open up a few more channels of coaching information and expertise and not just build this kind of siege mentality of denial around you and and the setup and insist that you know we can compete and we're doing okay and we're going to turn it around tomorrow because that that day never seems to come uh sure I, it doesn't solve all the problems by any means by any stretch of the imagination but it seems to me that what england really are crying out for is is a batting specialist coach you know duncan fletcher demonstrably improved cricketers uh he stood behind them and watched them in the nets and he knew inside out uh the tiny little details of a batsman's technique and he would help them and he had clear-minded theories chris silverwood's he's a he's a bowling coach by trade and moved very quickly through the ranks of county cricket and then england and um you know he's he's a good bloke and, and they like him and and that's in the pros and cons, that's very useful for him because they do like him. They like the fact that he's up front and straight talking and so on. They also probably like the fact that he's probably unstintingly loyal uh, and and is not especially uh, powerful or pushy or um, dominant a figure in the dressing room. He's quite a passive figure. And, you know, the big beast in that dressing room probably quite like that because they probably feel safe. But I think... that. I don't think we need that that anymore. I don't think that really stands up anymore. 
Um, Graham Thorpe has been a fascinating interview that Thorpe gave, distancing himself from responsibility. Uh, and again, there are there is absolute kernels of truth in what he says. Of course, of course, Graham Thorpe can't just solve the problem on his own and the next batting coach and the next batting specialist coach who's enlisted can't just solve the problem just like that but they can help and uh, I'm afraid it's, it's a numbers game isn't it and the numbers are going only one way from, from everybody you know where's, where's Rory Burns's game now he made an Ashes 100 two years ago he made a very good 100 actually at Edgbaston against New Zealand earlier this year where's his game now um, we can't we can't accept that idea that, that argument that well, it's it's beyond me, mate. It's beyond me. It's beyond my responsibility. It's, it's not even in my pay grade. Well, it is because you're the coach and that's the job. The only way Silverwood might have been able to get out of this was he, was if he wasn't the selector and said, well, look, these are the players I've been given and they're not doing the job. What, what I couldn't have done anymore. By making him selector as well, there is really no get out here. He, he, can't, he can't be absolved of blame for both things. Um, and he has picked players who haven't performed and he's coached players who haven't performed and the results speak for themselves over the last year. There's no way he should continue in the role. Um, and if he does, I think it's probably more to do with the, the schedule than anything else. I just wonder if they think they've got time to sort everything out before they pick a squad for the Caribbean. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you compare this to football, but you compare this to pretty much any other sport. You can't preside over this level of failure and keep your job. It's just... Also, on a human level, immense sympathies for the bloke. I mean, he's, he's literally lived probably at home for about 60 days a year for the last two years trying to keep his head above water during a pandemic when you're, you know, swabbing all over the world. And so I feel for him, massively so. It's too big, too many jobs, too many, too much stuff on his plate. Um, clearly, we have to revisit the split coach's idea. Giles was against it because he felt he was on, the, he had the, the rough end of the stick on that one when he was one day coach and Andy Flower was test match coach. Well, I think now with increasingly divergent games anyway, with a strong-minded and strong-willed director of cricket, is it Ashley Giles or the manner of his decisions? Do they have to threaten his own position as well? Well, many, many people are saying so. Michael Atherton wrote over the weekend in the, in the Times that his position is untenable. Um, but whoever that person is in the long term, they need to be strong, strong-minded in saying who can be available and who can't, for sure. But I think in the in the long term, especially in the times that we live in, it has to it has to play out now that we have two specialist coaches for the two different formats. Has to. I do worry though that England won't get rid of Silverwood, basically. Like I think first of all, I think that's quite likely they'll say we're not going to make any decisions until our review in whatever form that takes is concluded. Uh, <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but but then I also think that because as Phil says, you know, there there are it's 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 not entirely Silverwood's fault and he hasn't had the easiest go of it that they will look at it and say that like, you know, after the first test against India last year, um the first test away in India, it was going pretty well. And since then we had a rest and rotation policy which we didn't get exactly right and we made him select which we shouldn't have done. And uh and 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 you know, there's been a bit of other misfortune. We've had some tough fixtures, and they'll do all of that, and, and then say we had some uh, tough fixtures does well, not count. No, I'm 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 not I'm not. I'm, I know, but, but they they uh, yeah. But I, I just I just worry that they'll say that like, and if we can just kind of rewind then. And the, so the question of fault is obviously a useful one to a degree, but I think the question is also is Silverwood the person to turn this around? And I don't think that is the. <laughs> I don't think he is. I mean, and, and I don't think if if they ask themselves that question, they will think that. That is he that Silwood is a person who can get a batting group functioning. That is just not 
something that he is capable of right now, I think. And change needs to happen really quickly, not just because it's awful to watch, but if you think what England have got coming up next, again, to the Caribbean, uh, where they haven't won since, what, 2004? So they haven't won there. They've won in Australia more recently. They've won in the Caribbean. Uh, then they've got home tests against South Africa. Uh, and obviously they've got New Zealand coming over as well. Uh, and then they go to Pakistan. And there are these, and you've got India at sandwich in there as well. If they, they could end up conceivably losing to West Indies, South Africa and uh, Pakistan, who are all ranked below them over the next year, and end up, what, maybe sixth in the test rankings, which would be humiliating, really, given the resources that they've got at their disposal compared to some of the other countries we're talking about. If England end up plunging those depths, that that is really as bad as when they hit bottom of the world in 1999 given the disparity in, in resources now that, that has such an effect in, in uh, world cricket. So they need to take serious action. Otherwise, this say this is rock bottom. I don't think we're even close to rock bottom. I mean, we, we've got thrashed in Australia, which happens all the time. I think this is exposing what could happen in the next 12 months. So action needs to be taken now rather than, oh God, that was bad, but it can't get worse than that. I think that is incredibly naive if that's the viewpoint. What action do you think should be taken in the next month or so? Well, Silverwood going... Um, and they're being split coaches uh, for white ball and red. Uh, I I think Giles probably has to go as well. I think if we're complaining about the the split, the sorry, the selector and coach joint roles being fundamental to the issues that they're experiencing, that was that was Giles's call. Uh, so I think he probably has to go as well. They haven't got any even got a chairman that used to be at the moment. I mean, <laughs> how many people can so there's you rumors sack? about Strauss to, who who may be. Uh, moving into that role, there's rumours around that. I don't chairman know, I mean, rather than director of cricket. Chairman, role. yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the, th- the thing with chairman is is how much difference can you make? I, I'm, it always feels more of a kind of ambassadorial role. Um, ideally, you'd get Strauss back in the role that he he did before and 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 would take over from Giles, but I, he might well not fancy that now. The tricky thing is as well, England because they say they want a, a reset of of the test team and uh, you know to start uh, you know properly rebuilding the side, but that does become very difficult when you're already not a very good test team and it's very different to the 2015 thing because every test does match in a way that it doesn't with one internationals when you firstly the team that England picked for that New Zealand series back then was just way better than the team they picked for the World Cup but also uh like it wouldn't have mattered if they'd have got beaten 4-1 or 5-0 in that series particularly uh because you can afford to you know experiment in that form a bit more like each result doesn't carry the same currency whereas England have to win in the West Indies or like they have to pick the squad that they think that, that do they the though because do they, they absolutely not qualify for the World Test Championship final so what's the point well I mean because losing in West Indies would be would, would be horrific would, would, would like if, if you pick an experimental team and that losing the West Indies that's even worse so so when you're talking about the likes of players you know who are uh, we kind of know aren't the players that are going to get England up to the level of of Australia or India so the likes of maybe Rory Burns or Dad Milan possibly and they're not going to be in the side in maybe five years time but if they are in the best 11 to win a test series in the West Indies or to then like a kind of it's it's a, it's a really tricky decision basically because as as you as your plans start getting messed up you kind of lose your ability to plan as well because each immediate result becomes even more important and as Joe says if England lose like their next four test series which is very possible then like it is so much worse than right now and so they have to pick the side that they think has the best chance of doing that, but that might not be the side that allows them to develop most in two or three years' time. So it's yeah. It's mm. a- um, Joe, what do you what do you make of Joe Root's comments after the test match about 
county cricket. He said, he was asked about what he thinks about county cricket. And he said, how long have you got? What I'd say is what incentives in county cricket right now are there to open the batting right at the top of the order? What incentives are there to be a spinner? What incentives are there to bowl fast? And that's all kind of fair and all things that uh, lots of respected respected pundits have said in the last few weeks. Um, but is there a danger that, um, you know, Ben is talking about the possibility of Silwood holding on to the role, that there's not enough ownership of what has happened in Australia? Um, I think counting cricket is an easy target. And that's not to say that there aren't many things that could be improved about the structure of the season. But I think, um, well, I spoke for the upcoming issue of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly, which is out this week. Um, Phil and I put together the, the five burning questions that England need to address right now. One of which was, is the county championship fit for purpose? And I spoke to Daryl Mitchell um, and Andy Hurry at Somerset and Ian Salisbury, obviously right at the heart of the county game. And they are, I think, instinctively protective of the county game. And I absolutely understand that. Um, but they are also aware of the, the realities around it. But but I think there is an issue if they don't want to be kind of tarred with the brush of a, of a horrendous Ashes tour. And actually, you end up doing things that aren't productive because they're based on a kind of emotional reaction to what we've seen in Australia. Um, in terms of like the motivation of, of being an opening batter in, in Red Bull cricket, um, Mitch, Darren Mitchell was quite good on that and he said when he when he came through everything was focused towards Red Bull everything he worked on was focused towards getting your, your place in that championship side and then everything else built out from there so then you would start to think do I get in the one day team and obviously we're, we're almost at a point of complete reversal now he also as an opening batter himself he, he just retired at the end of last year he was talking about just how difficult it is to open the batting now and he said um, getting kind of quite technical he said one of the the kind of game changers over the last few years has been the wobble wobble, uh, has been the wobble seam delivery so he said as an opening batter he would face every opening bowler trying to move the ball away and nick him off and he said that meant you could leave 60 70 8 percent of your deliveries to get yourself in he said now with a wobble seam delivery on the fourth fifth stump line which might go either way you're you're having to play so many more deliveries throw in that the pitches are probably worse throw in that you're playing in April and September and it becomes a really, really tough role that is basically in no way representative of what you find when you step up to test cricket. And that they each had, it summed up how difficult it is because they each had different views on how they should fix it. Ian Salisbury was adamant it's the pitches. He said at Sussex, they, he tells his groundsman to prepare uh, a wicket as though he was preparing a wicket for a test match. He says he wants it to be as flat as possible and then spin a bit come the end of the match. Now, that's probably not necessarily serving Sussex that well. They've got young seamers who got basically taken around the park last year. They would probably be better served by having green seamers like you see elsewhere. 180 plays, 220 plays, and then you get some wins there there or thereabouts. Um, and he wants, Salisbury wants to see the, um, the ECB centralise groundsmen. So they get paid by the ECB, then they have control over over the pitches um which i've heard that mentioned i haven't perhaps heard it kind of seriously talked about in the press like some other ideas um each game has a match referee each county four-day game has a match referee who turns up and watches how the game plays out and then makes a mark on that pitch um 14 of the 18 counties last year uh came out in the positive overall um, they came out in the black, if you like. Uh, only four of those 18 didn't. And the perception among the groundsmen 
who are these peculiar kind of enigmas in English cricket or in, in, in the game full stop, they feel like, if anything, the, uh, the, the marking system is actually a little bit too harsh. Um, and I spoke to Gary Barwell, who's the, Somers- the Warwickshire head groundsman at Edgbaston, and he said he used the example of the game that they played last year against Essex when Warwickshire won on the final day and Yates made 100 against Harmer. And it was a good game of cricket and it was finished in the final session on day four. Uh, it was a really good game of cricket and I saw some of that, quite a lot of that live myself and it was a really good game. And that pitch was marked as good rather than very good uh, because it didn't give enough turn at the end of the game. You know, Now, this was a game in early May on a on a on a good track overall, but uh, and and he was kind of saying this is a good thing that they are strict in inverted commas, um, but he was he would say well if if we are the the main causes here the main culprits as as English cricket goes through the floor then why is that not being reflected in 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 the marking system? Um, he said, Gary Barwell said, and many others have. And Jamie Porter, the Essex's opening bowler, he said as well on Twitter a couple of days ago, and one easy win, maybe it's a bit superficial and simplistic, but the ball, uh, the, the red kookaburra versus the red jukes doesn't move anywhere near as, as appreciably. So You're saying specifically the seam yeah. is too big, basically. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking about the wobble seam. That ball, you'd think, would be more effective the larger the seam is yeah. the target, basically. You know, so just as Australian state cricket experimented with the Dukes ball a couple of years ago because they wanted to get more used to playing that. So the case can easily be made. It would hurt the ball-making company, um, but it wouldn't necessarily... Uh, it, well, it might actually imp- help improve improve that balance between the bat and the ball, which is obviously so skewed at the moment when you see medium paces averaging 14 for a season. And... You know, top order batsman barely getting getting up to thirty five. That's tricky though, isn't it? Because if you're going to use a kookaburra in, in county championship cricket, then surely you'd have to use it in Test cricket as well, right? So that so you you're using the same ball when you step up, and then England are throwing away a massive advantage in home tests because the Duke's ball serves them obviously not so much last summer, but serves them very well. As soon as you move one thing, then you move another. It's like trying to solve a Rubik's cube. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But but if the overriding issue is that batsmen don't bat more than a session then this would be one potential short-term experiment that could be done. It doesn't put anybody's nose out of joint. Um, and, and it might reflect in nothing, for sure. It may well it may well do, but I can understand why that would be argued for. And it's interesting that Jamie Porter, who obviously benefits from having a Duke's ball, would be arguing against using one. So maybe a bit of kind of selflessness is required here. And it is interesting to think about how this could improve the bowlers as well. Not And not just because you'd need to be quicker to be effective with it but because you'd need to be it's, it's just a slightly different skill when we were talking about Wokes earlier I mean he's been used most as a change bowler in the Ashes uh, and he's a good change bowler he's a very good change bowler in England first change bowler but partly because that Duke's ball swings for a bit longer and does have that bigger target of the seam like Scott Boland was often able to get seam movement when England's bowlers wouldn't have been able to and you wonder if that is just because you've got to bowl a wobble seamer a bit differently with the Duke's ball like if the Duke's ball has a bigger seam presumably you can let it wobble more and then if it hits it maybe it decks away a bit more whereas with a kookaburra ball you might have to have it wobble less and then it's just it's just a, a tiny bit of nip but that's that's actually what you need to do to, to give it the chance to do that and that's something that would be improved as well and there are times in the series where australia got more swing with the older ball more conventional swing with the older ball and you'd think that it, with the duke's ball in england sometimes that just keeps on swinging throughout an innings basically and if you're used to bowling with that you're probably not as 
well practiced in trying to get an older ball to swing. Uh, yeah, I'm, um, more, I'm more sorry. I'm more interested in the intensity of the cricket that's played rather than the surfaces personally. And that's certainly that's Andy Hurry said that was the absolute crux of it. He said we're not having the best play the best enough. So how can you change that? Well, he said he was a, a strong advocate of going back to the two division structure, which obviously we have. He, he was not being hugely critical because he said this has come about largely as a result of the the restructured championship based on making county cricket continue during COVID time. So he wasn't against what had happened, but he said, now we really have to get back to the best v best, first division, second division. Um, and he was willing to consider reducing the number of fixtures if, if that was going to add to the intensity and, and add to the kind of sense of competition. And I, I think cutting, cutting fixtures would, would definitely benefit as well. Uh, just in terms of like a match meaning more to everyone to everyone involved and, and therefore a, a significant score means more a five for means more I just I think we, we have to get to that point and you know that that helps the whole thing as well that seems like a double win by by reducing the number of fixtures you're increasing the intensity of red ball cricket and also you're making it easier to fit into the schedule which we know is a massive issue I think I think inevitably in in the end before the next change after the end we will end up with three tiers of six with promotion and relegation from that those three divisions and you'll be playing 10 games and it may well be that there is an additional two games that you play to decide you know like the Bob Willis trophy equivalent or something like that so you do have a showpiece it might be that you end up playing one or two more than 10 but I think we will get to that point and that top division will be high class cricket everywhere you go uh, what happens in the fullness of time to that third tier of six teams uh many of whom don't not make any money but actively lose money just by putting on four-day cricket and their survival instincts are naturally directed elsewhere away from four-day cricket and if they become less a part of the, the championship system uh, then I wouldn't be surprised if that if that happens in the fullness of time. For sure. And I mean, it's interesting you say that because the, the end of the 2021 County Championship when they split into three divisions, that division three didn't feel great like it was so far away there was no meaning there at all understandably county members and people who have affiliations to to counties will be will be disappointed to see that play out but it wouldn't be the death of those counties um and if anything it might actually future proof them a little bit more because they could then focus their energies more in white ball cricket they could play some kind of form of Red ball cricket, maybe, but semi-first class as, as you know, in fact, as like trial games, feeder games, hoping that that can then help, you know, the players move mm. into that top top twelve bracket. It's but not, I, th I think it, I think it is going to happen one day, whether we like it or hate it. I think it will happen eventually. And one it, day. it's not that far away from what Jonathan Agnew is proposing. I think what what he's proposed is not is not brand new. Other people have suggested. I think it's quite interesting that. Agnew said this as someone you know kind of almost as, as establishment as figures you get you know the, the voice of TMS etc um, I'll just run through what he said quickly he says first you have to understand that the 18 first class county counties essentially control the domestic structure for that reason I wish the 18 county chairman had been down there on the Hobart outfield with me to see Australia celebrating that would make them fully understand that something needs to be done the counties would still play in the blast they still play 50 over cricket and they would have their own Red Bull tournament possibly with, with three day matches that produces a conveyor belt for the Premier First Class competition, um, which would be 10 teams. So the eight 
I guess the eight bases where you have the hundred plus two more. Um, I know what I'm suggesting is radical, but the time has come to streamline the elite level of first class cricket. So, so creating UK. new teams completely, new first class teams. So well, Northern Superchargers becomes a Red Bull cricket team plus yeah, much, yeah. plus two more. I mean, this is it's a lot more radical than yeah. Phil was talking about. I mean, it's more it's the, it's the Kevin Peterson model, yeah. Esen- essentially. Yeah. yeah, and it's extraordinary. I mean. Yeah. I'd take this with a pinch of salt. I mean, I, Wait, I mean, how long how long ago was it when he said that to you? Yeah, so I interviewed um, Agnew not that long. I mean, a couple of years ago, and he was a, at that point a, a fierce advocate of one division, <laughs> eighteen <laughs> counties. Everyone plays everyone, and he said the the switch to two divisions was was what had killed counties like Leicestershire. So this is quite. This feels very knee jerk to me. Um, he's speaking to a BBC reporter at the end of the Test match that has been pretty harrowing. I don't know if he necessarily will think that in six months' time. Perhaps, perhaps this is now a, a significant turning point for him. But um, yeah, it feels knee joke. And yeah, he is—he is a Leicestershire man. I wonder uh, what they're thinking. Yeah, I mean, there, there will be a lot of yeah, there'll be a lot of people affiliated to the smaller, smaller counties who are, I guess, at most under threat. Uh, reading that column, thinking if this is the way the wind is blowing, maybe we're in trouble here because. If he starts to lose the support of people like Jonathan Agnew, who, as you say, is a kind of a, a traditionalist, then that is quite concerning. I still don't. I mean, what he's also there are counties. Every county has cricketers who are contracted uh, for two, three, four years to play all formats and get a certain amount of money based on that. So what what happens to those contracts? They can't just be ripped up and and start again. I don't, I don't, we're not leaving the eighteen county model for for some time yet. I don't think. I do quite like the idea, though, of uh, or I'm amused by the idea of first-class franchises. Because obviously, with T20 or the 100, they obviously have on like names that sort of evoke T20 cricket, and whether you'd get like a uh, you know the, the the Wimbledon wobble seamers and the uh, the Liverpool <laughs> leavers and that sort of thing. I don't know. Uh... Um, Sachin asks, um, what... got a question from Sachin. Excellent. Yeah, I think it's a different one. Uh, yeah. What are the quick wins that the ECB can implement to improve the state of Red Bull cricket this season? The structural reforms make sense, but it'll take a long time to see those results. So we've touched on a couple of them already. The, the changing the balls, is, for example. So anything else that we can do uh, for t- the 2022 summer that could make a difference in the short term? Well, there was the thing that Giles was talking about regarding the IPL uh, and, you know, basically forbidding a number of contracted cricketers from playing more than a few, than a few games of it and therefore forcing them to, to come back and play Red Bull cricket. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's it's a good PR statement, and but there's logic to it, I would suppose, up to a point. But I've said it before, I feel like from April onwards or mid-April mid onwards, it really is just year dot, really, in, in the next cycle of English cricket. And... Um, I'm just fascinated to see how many of these players that we routinely talk about are going to be there playing every week, desperate to make runs, grinding it out. See, you know, adopting the Marnus leave, you know, the fetishizing the leave almost. Be fascinating to see, you know, what version of cricketer Liam Livingston is come April and May, how much he plays. Same with James Vince, same with Joe Clark, same with so many of these names who are now completely necessarily in the mix. That doesn't really answer your question, I suppose. Uh, but I've already I've already said about the ball, so someone else can have a I think, go. I think making, I mean, it's sort of touching on what Phil's just said, but making England players available more regularly to play county championship games would be a good start. And it just adds a lot more spice to a game. People are checking the scorecards more often. People care, you know, that runs are scored if Stuart Broad is playing. They, they kind of mean more, really. Yeah, I guess what I would say is that last year, 
you had a pretty good turnout from England's test guys. You did first up, but w- could we get to a position where actually we would say, and perhaps we won't, but even England's white ball players, we would be happy for them to play championship cricket rather than playing in a white ball series against whoever the visiting country is. Now that would be a statement. That would be a statement saying we care about red ball cricket enough that we want whoever it is playing that county championship game rather than playing the third ODI of a five ODI series. That would seem like a, a quite a symbolic step in the dark, step in the right direction. I can just see Owen Morgan just stroking his white cat, you know, watching all these screens in his lair somewhere. Well, I'm not sure about yeah, that. Yeah, I guess, I guess that, that's <laughs> difficult though because then you get, you get paying fans who want to see the best yeah. England white ball team that England have available. Uh, well, that was great fun when, they, when the C team played last last summer. Everyone it was great fun. Well, I think we all said that was the best part um, of the summer. Yeah, wasn't exactly. it? One, yeah. one thing, any, any value in a, in a you know a, an England Lions mashup in the build up to the to the first Test match, a kind of good old fashioned trial match that you used to have back in the good old days. You know, the the best twenty four cricketers playing in a first class four day game on a on as flat a track as you can find in mid May in the build up to that Test series. Well, I think so. That, that would be you'd watch it as well. Lots of people are talking about the uh, the difference between county championship and Test cricket, and if you can have more cricket that, that bridges that gap. We've had a few questions about England Lions possibly playing more cricket. I mean, Tom Harrison wrote that letter to Cricket Australia asking for our guys to play in the Shield. I just imagine the reaction. Cricket yeah, Australia, no, honestly, HQ, as if like, it wasn't embarrassing yeah, enough exactly. the last couple of months. Please, yeah. sir, can my boys come yeah. play? Tom Harrison saying that we need uh, our players need more experience playing in Australia. Well. You know, how many of that successful Lions trip actually played in this series? Only Just Ollie Robinson. Ollie Robinson yeah. Meanwhile, you've got Darren Lawrence, who's, who's sat on the bench. Mm. Anyway, that's, that's another that's a separate conversation. But one, yeah. one thing that puzzles me a bit, it's kind of like sort of like what's changed between when England were good between 2004 and 2012 and now? Like what, what has changed between like the, the structure of the game? You know, back then you had the, the blast and the, the one day cup and the Cantrimbury was already starting to be moved towards the margin. Then, But one thing I wonder, just as a, in terms of getting the quality back up I mean if, if you do want a short-term fix to get the quality better would you look at like having a couple one more overseas spot possibly maybe even a, a fund to get some players in I mean it's 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 a bit of a I don't know not a shame but like when you know the, the, the dominant overseas players tend to be like Mohammed Abbas and Kyle Abbott sort of coming in bowling like an English bowler but just better but I wonder if there's if there's something there to you know just strengthen the teams basically, and that you had the loads of coal packs back then. Which, I, I, which I think that's, a really, I think that's well. a really good idea. Actually, the problem would be certain clubs might not be able to afford them. So in that case, you maybe look at the ECB and you say, okay, can we free up a, a fund if you like to help buttress the county's budgets, mm-hmm. and then you could go to one or two. You know, Nazim Shah, for example, is at Gloucester. You know, that's that's. He's he's sharp. He's properly sharp, you know, and he's raw, and he'll be great to watch. That's that's a brilliant move by a very progressive club, by the way. And um, a few more of those, a couple of the West, well, the, the young West, like J- Jaden Seals, for example. Yeah, like a guy like that yeah. that's already test class and bowling quickly. Like Crick Crick Viz did the did the numbers on it, um, and 0.6 uh, percent of the time, county bowlers, county batsmen face bowlers. Upwards of, I think, 80, 80. It's 140k, which is, yeah. It's about 87. 87. Yeah. 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 So 0.6 of the time they face them, and that number goes up to 16% in te- uh, once you get to test level. So, you know, your heart can bleed for Hasib Hamid, but when he misses it by, by that much against Mitchell Stark, it's because he never faced him, made, faced that kind of stuff before, you know, and, and he's, he's obviously not the only, the only mm. one. Um, uh, going back to, to Ben's question about kind of what has 
what has changed. I was just thinking that so John Stern interviewed Steve Harmison for our, our latest issue. And Harmison was kind of lamenting that the loss of the reduction in quality of the county championship over the years. And John asked um, Harmison what the peak was in his time. And he referred back to a game in 2005, Durham against Lancashire at Old Trafford. And John went and dug out the scorecards. So Lancashire had uh, Murrilitheran, Brad Hodge, Stuart Law, Andrew Flintoff, Jimmy Anderson and Dominic Cork in their sides. Durham had Mike Hussey. Mick Lewis was the other overseas player from Australia. Paul Collingwood, Dale Benkenstein, Phil Mustard, Liam Blunkett. Uh, that was a second division match. So if you think how how different that is now, if yeah. you're a young player playing in that match, and you know that, I'm not saying that was what it was like all the time in 2005, but that is very different to the lineups we see now. And yeah, I, I still, I still, sorry, I still do think though. Now you, you do get the odd county game where you go through the two 11s. Uh, it's like there are about. 12, 13, 14 players who played international cricket and it is still not quite the levels of names there but it's not like a million miles off. I don't know. I, I do wonder if that has actually changed that much. But I, I guess what, one thing that's tricky as well is that, and this comes back to the, the T20 question, there's not a solution to this, but like back then, the overseas thing you could do when your team wasn't playing international cricket would be coming to play counter cricket. Now you have like a, a million different overseas gigs you can get that are a lot more fun, a lot easier that also advertise you to other leagues and it's like more of a, a career path. So that that is that is tricky and I don't know what the solution is, but that, that you think there would be a handful of players who are kind of sitting around doing nothing that would improve the quality and the speed of the bowling, the county championship and stuff, possibly. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess one thing that has changed is that the quality of overseas players is different. Yeah. Uh, that Murley literally all-time great, Holt spends summer after summer in England, I guess now... You don't really get that. It's like it's it's a big news story when someone like Nassim Shah, who's not even that established as a Test cricketer, commits to a significant chunk of the season. Yeah, or that, Rizman was the other one. Yeah. That was really when you yeah. see that, you're like, wow. Oh, wow. Whereas actually, that used to be the norm. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Think Ashwin playing last summer and how yeah. big a deal that was as well. Yeah. Um, just just finally on 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 England, um, Ethan asks, how do England approach the West Indies series? Who gets a go that's not currently involved at the moment? Just a few names. That anyone wants to pick out? We're on the carousel again. <laughs> no, it feels a bit ridiculous. I mean, I did. This is part of the the burning questions. That, yeah, that Joe picked like, his squad. I picked my squad. I won't go through it all now, but I had certainly. I mean, the top order clearly has to change. Mm. I think Crawley uh, clings on based on a kind of couple of promising knocks at the end there. But I would bring. Well, I I would throw out a few names. I think Sam Robson, who's we talked about before, should be part of the conversation as an experienced opener who probably got a bit hard done by and scored a thousand runs last year. Um, but I think they're much more likely to go to the, the Lions contingent. And that probably means Alex Lees and James Bracey probably competing to open with Crawley in the Caribbean. That, that's probably the way I'd go. I know you said mm. you spoke to Alex Lees yeah, recently Yeah, pr- probably well. going to play that on next week's episode. But yeah, it's quite interesting. He's got a good record playing at Durham. He's not, I think it's a little bit like when before Rory Burns played for England, that he's just not had like a season where he's scored millions he's scored a lot he's had just lots of seasons where he's averaged about 40 which compared to what the openers is is actually pretty good and on Bracey um, it'd be very unfair if Bracey's test career amounts to two games where he kept wicket and batted at seven and obviously they went horribly for him but I think he deserves a, a chance at something he's shown enough in county cricket um, but I think we all have to be honest we're, we're picking these names out of hope than expectation there is no based on what we've seen over the last few years we'd be quite it'd be quite odd if we thought oh yeah well they're gonna average 40 plus mm. in test cricket we just kind of hope one of these stick really i guess we'll take 30 plus nowadays um i think it also maybe depends a bit who actually the coach is by that time like um because for example with ollie pope who i think we would still all agree that there is a player there but who looks like a 
a shambles at the moment. But how, so how does he get back to that to that level uh, if it's still Chris Silver in charge? I think he's going to do it in the current England environment. Uh, and so that we'll be going back to county cricket and basically figuring it out on his own. But if there is sort of a, a a proper batting, you know, knowledgeable figure there who can sort of grab a player and say, you need to be doing this, you need to fix this, you need to sort this, then actually I can see him doing that in the England environment. So I guess that's that's something as well. It actually depends who the coach is and obviously they will have a lot of say as well. But then I would be less worried about them sticking with the same group because I think to a large extent these are a lot of the... I mean, when we did a piece on wisdom.com picking out the uh, England's team if it was just based purely on their first class averages and that's removing their test numbers from that. And actually it's pretty similar to the players England have given a go over the last... Uh, uh, two years or so Josh Bohannon was the only specialist back yeah and, and he's he's kind of he came through last season he's not yeah. he could get a go pretty soon uh but apart from that it is I mean it, and you know Pope they talk about his numbers at the Oval being extraordinary even if you take those out he averages 46 in first class cricket so like I can I I, I, I yeah I guess that that also comes into it quite a lot for the West Indies I think and the guys just on the periphery were all guys who've already been given a go as well which is quite interesting I, I, I wouldn't have personally I know test championship all of all of that you know I get it, but personally... bottom of the league, Phil. I know we are. It's fine. We've been there before. Uh, personally, I wouldn't mind seeing certain players just be taken out of the firing line for their own sake. Mm. Someone like David Milan, whose wife gave birth... Uh, during the test match. During the test match. I think on overnight, and he had to go out and bat the following morning. <laughs> he, he was obviously in Dubai for the T20 stuff. He's gone through this tour, and you could see how his form has ebbed away. Somebody like him should be a part of England's story, absolutely. Mm. But just just let the boy have a rest. Joss Butler is... Clear. He doesn't want a rest, though, does he? he? He might not do. He might not do. Because his chance could easily just go at the right, age he okay, is. Okay, okay. But if you, if you believe that he's absolutely the answer at number three, irrefutably the, the answer at number three, and he's up for it, and, he's, and his energy levels are good, and all the rest of it, he, in, I interviewed him just before the tour he spoke about bubble fatigue quite openly and how it's affected him just like it's affected others um but if if you if you look him in the eye and he says i'm i'm desperate for this and i want it fine but if there is any any sense of vulnerability any sense of 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 drag dragging yourself through the the mud and it's not looked fun for a lot of them this has not been fun mark nicholas wrote a very good thing on crick info about that it's looked it's looked like a real toil for them. It's meant to be you're you're meant to be living your dream. At the moment, that dream is a walking nightmare for a lot of them. Joss Butler, everybody agrees. Joss Butler, Joss Butler looks looks shot. So you know, take him out the firing line. I don't have an issue with that. Um, and again, a couple of the opening batsmen. Would it would it benefit? Hasib Hamid won't be going on that tour. You assume Rory Burns has made, what, six or seven ducks last year, looks knackered, looks shot, might just benefit from just, just being away from the game for six weeks. April comes around very, very quickly. And I've said a lot all along, broken record on it, but that to me is, is the starting point. So what happens in the West Indies, sure, it's important for pride, it's important for individual stories. But if, if there are fewer established people there and one or two more punts than you would normally, ordinarily, then I'm okay with that because of because of the... The, the darkness that they'll be dragging themselves out from. But if we assume, if we assume for a second that Root continues as captain and we assume that he captains in the West Indies, if he loses that series, whether it's with a development, developmental side or not, then it's hard to see how he can carry on. So do you not think he could end up, 
his position as captain beca- could become untenable if they lose in the Caribbean, even if you're saying that series doesn't necessarily mean all that much. Yeah, I hear that. But I think the circumstances are extreme at the moment. And I think there's a lot of players who have done both both those previous tours and the day-to-day circumstances are not like it used to be where, you know, you, you play for England, you're living your dream, everyone else wants to do what you're doing with your life and, and you crack on. It's not like that anymore. It's quite a miserable experience for, for a lot of international cricketers at the moment and I think that has to be kind of taken into account when you're looking at the suitability and the readiness to go again. And this this obviously brings us back to the schedule a bit as well and the, the, the demands that the ECB asks of these cricketers. I mean, and you, a lot of the players that we've talked about on this podcast, we haven't explicitly said it, but just playing a, a, a World Cup and then an Ashes series is unprecedented, I think, right? And it's no surprise that maybe that Woke, Wokes is is not hitting the spot every ball by the end and that, you know, Milan wants to, to, to get home to his, his newborn child and, and that, you know, but Butler's putting one out into the deep at, uh, at the MCG and that sort of thing. I mean, um, I mean, Bairstow is a sort of an outlier, but, you know, given the worst possible situation, that's when he's kind of, he'll, he'll summon something to to, 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 to to up your sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, I think that is a big factor as well. And again, that's not something with, you know, they have obligations and that sort of thing, but that's something we've said a lot that the schedule is, you know, is giving, not giving any chance to succeed basically. And it's continuing this year. I mean, ne- next winter is actually, I think they might have five tours next winter or between the end right. of the next summer and the summer after that. And it's just, it, it's it's never ending. And then, With the World yeah. Cup in the middle as well. Yeah. 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 So, um, it, so if it becomes a broader squad game and you're not... Which cons- it has to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Then then I can understand that, you know. Mm. I, like the idea I, of I having a best that. 11 isn't, isn't complete out the window, but for a team with the schedule that England have... That yeah. that has become yeah. I mean, like how, I mean, I think there was a Simon Wild from the from the Times. He tweeted something about the number of changes England made between each Test match since uh, maybe the first or second Test in India, and it's like four, four, five, two, three, mm. four. You know, it, mm. England don't have a best eleven. Yeah, um, England had twenty five Test cricketers in twenty twenty one. Sorry, just finally, finally, just going back to your Joe Root thing. Um, I mean, fair play to the bloke. He's captain now in more test matches than, than any other Englishman. Uh, and he's absolutely sure that he wants to carry on. I don't think he, he would know. He knows the game well enough to, you know, hedge his bets in the aftermath of Hobart. If, if he genuinely is thinking about, about relinquishing the job, he's not, he wants it. He, you know, the line is quite telling. He said, there's a lot that we need to do for this team, which deserves all of my energy. He's not going in the IPL auction as a consequence of that. I'll keep sacrificing as much as I can because I care so much about test cricket in our country. Well, this is that, it. That, that is the wor- that's the words of a bloke who is absolutely desperate to turn this thing around. Fair play to him. It's also, do you know what I mean? It's the words of someone who knows there's no one else who can take the job. You can read between the lines there. But there is something... Honourable about that too. Oh, right? mass- no, massively so. Even more so <laughs> if he doesn't yeah. want it to carry on. But I, I don't know necessarily because he says he wants to continue in the job. That means that if there was an alternative, he would still want to do that. But no, yeah. I mean, yeah, ma- massive respect for him to continuing in this because, especially at this point, you'd think just have a bat. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, moving on. Uh, after the disappointment of the Ashes, um, surely Test cricket can only get better for England from here. Sportsbreaks.com are offering a once-in-a-lifetime cricket experience. They're supplying packages to Barbados, one of the bucket list cricket events. That is England on tour in the Caribbean. Sportsbreak.com are offering personalised tickets 
travel and hotel packages around the Barbados Test Match on the 16th to the 20th of March. This includes 10 nights in one of their hand-picked hotels with breakfast included from the 13th of March. Return flights to Barbados from either Manchester or Heathrow, including taxes, charges and 23 kilos of hold luggage allowance, a five-day standard ticket at the Kensington Oval, airport transfers by coach, transfers to and from the stadium as well with sportsbreak.com if the event is cancelled or moved to an alternative date during the pandemic you will receive a full refund to book your package or to find out more head to sportsbreak.com ben big news this week outside the ashes i guess it's the biggest news in cricket was virat kohli has resigned as the indian test skipper uh, a day or so after they fell to a 2-1 series defeat in south africa uh, four months ago uh, I think, when he was captain of all three formats. This would have been unthinkable that Virat Kohli would, would not be captain in any format for India. But it's happened, his his fall in power in Indian cricket has happened remarkably. Yeah, it's 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 been, it's crazy to think back to, to that point, especially, yeah, to the, think at the end of the... Uh, just imagine during the Lord's Test match, exactly. you said the, 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 the end of the time he's not captain England, of anything. When he's, uh, he's on the verge of completing a series win in England to follow up a series win in Australia. Uh, and then, you know, they go home for the uh, uh, for, for the, instead of playing the fifth test, and then he relinquishes the RCB captaincy during the IPL, and then it's the T20 captaincy saying he wants to focus on his captain in the other formats. Then he has the ODI captaincy taken away from him, and now this. I mean, Ganguly sort of insisted in his uh, in his tribute to him, saying like this is his own personal decision, which sort of prompts you to wonder, is it his own personal decision? But I think it might well be because I mean, this is a guy who has you know been so sort of enthusiastic and dedicated. I mean, if, if you look at Joe Root, imagine doing that in a country where like there's a billion fans and expectation on you. And you actually a, like cricket. Yeah. yeah. And then and then there's, a, there's, there's also a, a massive other tournament that is actually also loved in the IPL and you're the captain of all three and you've done it for a lot longer uh, and all that. And, and you're just a, a hugely intense bloke anyway. I mean, he it's, it's been a marvel that he's gone on for as long as he has in one way. And also you can then kind of see how when you sort of start stepping back from one thing you actually start kind of stepping back you, you realize actually like the, the, the other stuff starts falling away kind of quite quickly in terms of what you feel you can actually keep mustering yourself up for uh it's interesting thing about his, his legacy as a skipper because i mean you can look at it in some ways and think that there have been some quite big missed chances there i mean you look at the india tour uh the India tour to england in 2018 and the separate tour before that and also especially this one now i mean if, if he'd won now his legs would have been completely secure first india captain to win in Australia, first into captain in South Africa. Now he's missed that last chance and you actually wonder, like, India had a chance to cement themselves as a properly one of the great sides and they have just slightly missed that. But the fact is, is that they have got up to the position to do that in the first place. I mean, when you think when they took over, they, were, they weren't really a team that competed overseas, really. I mean, uh, and you can kind of, you, obviously you can't put all the credit for that at Kohli's door because he has had a very good team to call upon. He's had very good fast bowlers, uh, that are better than India ever had. But I think he also has credit for realising that what India needed was to bring through a, a group of fast bowls, not just three, but you know five or six really, all of whom can compete with the best in the world. Um, Do you think Cody deserves credit for that? Well, I, mean, I, mean, I think Cody deserves uh, a I, lot I th- of credit think, overall, but isn't that just because they have more? For, for no, I, th- I think he deserves at least some credit for being part of the vision to do that. I mean, he's, he's definitely not the only one, but I think it was sort of him and Ravi Shastri and Barrett Aaron, the bowling coach, who kind of saw that this was the way to do it. And as a group, they they sort of identified that and put that plan into place. And, it, and I mean, even like someone like Ishan Sharma, right? He was a, a joke cricketer, basically, uh, for, for, for the first half of his career. You know, statistically one of the worst bowlers has ever been. 
uh, was kind of there'd be memes about him sort of daily about you know how silly he looks and that sort of thing and he somehow under Coley and that leadership as the whole thing I mean I'm saying it's not all about Coley but I think he does deserve quite a lot of credit he went on to become one of the, the, the best bowlers in the world basically for a period of time and he did that thing in the magazine saying that he was the the, the best test bowler in the world and that was that would have been unthinkable when he was you know <laughs> this sort of gangly guy who was just spraying everywhere and uh and, and yeah, blame Crick, Crickviz for for that. Yeah, no, uh, but yeah. So, sure. so 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 yeah. I mean, it's 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 a it's a huge moment. I guess it's yeah. It's uh, it it, it it was shocking up to a point, but then the more I thought about it, the more it made sense to me. Uh, and not just coming on the back of the the loss of the the one day captaincy and the T Twenty uh, stuff, you know, and the the, the sort of brouhaha, if you like, around that issue. Um, irrespective of that, it felt like this was the end of their cycle. And reflected in Pajara and Rahane's diminishing form, although Pajara played quite nicely in, um, here and there in South Africa. But it f- felt like they were building towards that point and Coley has given everything over, what, seven years or something ridiculous like that. Uh, we're talking about Joe Root wanting to carry on. Well, well Coley's, Coley's, that job is up there compared to the England test captaincy in terms of intensity, scrutiny, expectations, living it 24 hours a day, all the rest of it. Uh, It didn't massively surprise me. And of course, he's not scoring the runs that he wants to as well. Uh, So (laughs) sport works in cycles. And and so the more I thought about the Coley thing, which did shock me initially, the more it began to make a kind of sense. You know, he's at that kind of age where He's won 40 test matches as captain. He wants, he wants 10,000, 11,000 test runs. He wants to, to get somewhere up towards that, that mark of, of 100 international hundreds. You know, he wants to, he's immensely fit. He's going to want to play for five years. And he might be thinking deep down in his private moments, I've, I've taken this team on my own steam as far as, it, as, I can, as I can go. I need now to look after myself and my own game a little bit more. And it, it makes sense from a team point of view because they've got an easier run of fixtures coming up. They don't have a, another big away tour like they've had sort of like a string of for about three years now. Um, the other thing that was interesting as well, just looking at that South Africa series, is that what India have especially made a habit of is those kind of last day sort of like rousing wins, basically. Like you give them any sort of sniff on the last day of a test match and they will absolutely snatch you. Think back to the uh, uh, the Oval and Laws last year. I mean, it was, was, it, it was the Lords one where... Uh, England kind of would have hoped to skittle the tail and then chase around England were favourites on day five yeah, yeah. and then and then but Boomer and Shami smash 100 quickly and then India are, are all over and, and Kohli plays a large part in that obviously just as the fielding captain but he sort of creates that intensity with how he is on the field it a living hell for an England batsman that day yeah uh, but but and, and so obviously gives South Africa a lot of credit uh, for how they batted in those last two chases but those are those are chases that like India have been kind of not winning in their sleep, but winning routinely with that style. And South Africa sort of saw it out. And actually it was interesting. I guess we'll talk more about the actual on-field behavior and that sort of thing. But they, India normally when something like that, that, that review against Elgar went against them in the past, they would have sort of like used that as motivation, sort of bowl a, a spell that, you know, would take three or four wickets and win the game here. They just lost their heads sprayed it about sort of it was, it was totally unhinged it yeah completely lost control that little period after that so yeah people didn't watch it uh dean elgar's given out on field for an lbw by, by erasmus actually and uh elgar doesn't seem that confident in going for the review goes review shows that ball's going over the stumps um and the indian players completely lose 
any sense of control, they basically start accusing the broadcasters of lacking integrity and saying that, uh, I think Ashwin said something, you need to do more than this super sport. And you had Coley bending down, speaking to the stump mic, trying to get a message across to the broadcasters. And South Africa then uh, scored some quick runs and suddenly the, the run chase from 60 to 1 to 100 for 1 looks completely different. Um, yeah, so what, what did you what did you make about that passage of play? Well, I guess it, it's interesting because, I mean, you, the thing with the broadcasters, this isn't a, the first time someone has complained about this. Like, this is a, what Australia said in in, in the, the Sandpaper Gate series. Like, I think Warner, even before the Sandpaper thing happened, he was sort of questioning how South Africa were getting the ball to, to reverse swing so much. And Coley, even before this incident, was talking about how the stump mics were being turned up for when India on the field and then turned down for when South Africa on the field. I mean, presumably implying that this allows the South Africa team to... Uh, but the implication there was more that they've doctored Hawkeye. Y- yes, yes, that 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 is ridiculous, and that is, I mean, and also it's just not super sport that even control Hawkeye. There are independent technology people that come in and and do these things, and you can look in the playing conditions, and that outlines who the approved regulate uh, the proof suppliers are. So that is that is ridiculous. That's true. Uh, um, but 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 so but I think I think the thing is as well. So yeah, he 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 lost the plot, and a lot of the team sort of followed his lead at that point, uh, and none of them were punished for it, which I think. Uh, people were quite surprised by and said that this is, you know, a sign of the BCCI's power and that sort of thing. They said because there's no actual stipulation regarding... Well, that's the thing. I wasn't hugely surprised by it because... You know the surprised you to know that I've, <laughs> I've read the Code of Conduct a few times. Uh, and, and basically, it kind of exists just to catch people who swear on stunt mic, which is basically, which is ridiculous and it's sure, not really fit not for like purpose. Is that gentlemanly conduct? Mm. Is that uh, in the th- rules? That, but th- there is a contrary to the spirit of the game, which never gets used. Uh, uh, bringing the game to distribute, surely? Yeah, but that, that's more for off-field stuff. So if a guy okay. has like a like a... Like I think that might have been used against Shannon Gabriel, possibly when he was uh, made the homophobic comment to to Joe Root. But that's more of like if a guy has like a you know like that does something like is caught doing something racist off the field sort of um, thing rather than on the field. So yeah, I think I think it just needs to be looked at and basically overhauled because there have been because all people were raising the uh, it's not just that there's not something to stipulate this. It's like when Rabada was sort of banned for that celebration near Joe Root, and again by the letter of the law because it has something that says. Uh, any sort of uh, act which could bring about a angry response from a batter upon their dismissal is warrants a punishment. And that's like a weird sort of metaphysical thing, you know, like anything I do could prompt a reaction from anyone. I mean, it's not my fault if some hypothetical batter is going to get annoyed by me shouting, but but that that is what the code of conduct says. So it, yeah, it's, it's not it's not a, a hugely compelling document in the way that the laws of cricket are. <laughs> so. um, uh, Phil, just on South Africa, amazing series win uh, to get two 200-plus chases. Uh, one of their best batters retires mid-series. Uh, other than Dean Elgar and at a push, Markram and Bavuma, it's a very unestablished top six. They had a bowler batting seven. Uh, Olafur playing first test series in a few years. Marco Jansen first test series. Lungan Geely's not played that much test And cricket. a keeper coming in to debut for... Yeah, and, 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 and Rabard has not quite been on it for a couple of years in the same way that he's normally been. An incredible series. But and also, like I guess the, um, the emergence of Keegan Peterson was, was probably most interesting, the way he batted that last test with a pair of, I think, 70 and 80. Yeah, we were saying last week, I, I find myself fonder and fonder of South African cricket because they they still find a way to bring through talent and they they remain an absolutely essential part of the fabric of world cricket but we sometimes forget about them a little bit uh, and because they have a dysfunctional history they sometimes you know and they're not a part of the big three in you know 
quote unquote, but they are absolutely critical to it for a number of reasons. The talent that comes out of South African cricket, although it sometimes disperses around the world due to economics, but the talent is as good as anywhere else. And the competitive instincts are as strong as ever before. And this series, we were all concerned, or as neutrals, we were concerned that it might be a little bit lopsided. And especially after that first test, they lost by 113 runs, I think it was, in the first test. And they were blown away uh, with the bat all out for you know under 200 in their first innings. And we kind of thought, all right, well, this could get quite, quite heavy against them. But what we saw again is what we've seen year after year. They have this, this, this kind of depth of competitive spirit that comes through, epitomised by their skipper, um, who was very interesting after the game on the second test match when he was 96 not out, won that game, Elgar did, brilliant, brilliant knock. Battered and bruised, you know, beaten up on the canvas, all the rest of it, and he comes through to win that game. And then he spoke about Rabada afterwards, and he says, he's our diamond cricketer, he's our great world-class bowler, and uh, I had to have a word with him because he, he, he wasn't delivering for us. And we had a few harsh words in the dressing room, me and him. And interesting to hear a skipper say that, but indicative, I think, of a bloke who now has come through via the back roads a little bit, not a particularly celebrated cricketer, but his record is outstanding as an opening bat, the best opening batsman statistically in South African history in home, home conditions. Yeah, yeah. And now, and it looked like he was the last man standing when he, was given, when he got the job after Duplessis, but now it's... It looks like his job for a long time and that he's building a kind of coherent group. All right. It lacks the, the star quality and the class of the Callis era and the de Villiers era. But what it does appear to have is a togetherness again. Mm-hmm. Rabada was transformed in that final test match and was unplayable. And it was a really rousing series. A really, really rousing series for the game. Also, just briefly on the pitches, you know, spicy pitches, but you could score runs. Now, me and Ben had a chat about this last week, and he said, ideally, you'd, you'd want slightly less life early on. And I can get that, and I can understand that. But even so, you take the, the third test pitch at Cape Town, which was spicy and a bit up and down, but... Your boy Peterson made two two seventy odds and batted absolutely beautifully in, in pressure cooker situations against, you know, a world class attack, Bumrah and Shami and the rest. So, so it was really really good for the game, really good for South African cricket as well because they've they they need the people to come with them. I think, and if you're a South African cricket lover, then you'd you'd have been pretty hurt and stung. I think by some of the things that have happened regarding the diaspora of certain players, the talent drain there. And then the de Villiers retirement and then the de Kock retirement out of nowhere. And these things judder you and, and, and that will hurt if you're a fan. So to see them come back and win 2-1 uh, with, a, with a nascent team mm. is an outstanding result. Great for them. Absolutely. South Africa have half a chance in the World Test Championship as well. Yeah, um, it's, it's a really interesting kind of projection, right? Of, yeah. Of what, yeah. So I, th- that projection that was doing the rounds, which I didn't quite agree with, it was especially sort of undervaluing India, I think. And I think an India-Pakistan final, which would obviously be amazing, uh, is the most likely thing at the moment. But South Africa's, their three away series are England, South Africa, uh, England, New Zealand and Australia, which are sort of toughish on paper, but, you know, they've never lost a series to New Zealand. I mean, obviously, best New Zealand side ever, but still, they'll have a chance in that one because you how they played here. You'd think they'd have a pretty good chance against England in England and Australia as well as they have another pretty good record that they haven't lost there in, uh, in absolutely ages. So that, they, they have 
and I think they also will only need to just win those three series rather than to win them without sort of win whitewashes or anything. So a couple of like a a one one in New Zealand maybe, and then a a two one and a two one, and that could be enough just about. And India have kind of messed it up a bit. I mean, they've got to play that one more test in England and then four against Australia, and I think they can only afford maybe two draws or one loss. So that will be. That there's there's a chance that they that they don't get to the final. Uh, but as I say, it could be Pakistan India, which would also be great. Mm. Um, another great uh, series win this week was Ireland beating West Indies two one um, in the Caribbean in the ODI Super League, which takes Ireland to third place in the Super League. They played a lot more games than most other teams, but still, um, last game was brilliant. They won by two wickets. Andy McBride scored uh, fifty nine, batting at number three, and took four for twenty eight with the ball. Uh, for Ireland to win that game and they were affected by a number of COVID uh, enforced absentees as well so that was a uh, really good win from them Um, just on the women's ashes which gets underway later this week England have played a couple of T20s against themselves they've got the England A team there at the same time as them Um, England A beat England in both games despite Sophie Eccleston taking 7 for 14 in one of them um, which is quite interesting, and uh, yeah, Eve Jones in the in the Michael Lum role, isn't it? She yeah. she, she made a couple of a, a pretty key twenty odds opening the batting, and obviously remember for the what, the twenty ten World T Twenty when uh, Lum and Keys were to show England that Denley and Trot weren't the way forward. Uh, yeah, uh, and some news uh, related to the Women's World Cup that's not too far away is that uh, South Africa's Dani Van Nieker is out of the World Cup, which is obviously a massive blow to South Africa. She slipped at home, I think. It's really? a, a freak injury, yeah. And obviously she's massive for them and a, and a brilliant captain as well. Obviously a brilliant player just uh, just on her own merits. But she 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 lifts that team. And obviously considering that T20 World Cup uh, two years ago now when they were you know, within a couple of hits of beating Australia, that is a massive blow for a team that would have fancied doing something quite mm. special. I feel like more people are slipping at home than than the new to. It's because they're spending more time at home, yeah. I guess. <laughs> That's true. Um, and Joe, we talked about it earlier, but there's a new Wizen Cricket Monthly out uh, this week. We talked about one of the, the, the cover feature, the burning questions for English cricket, but what else is in it? Uh, yeah, so that's the that's the lead story. Uh, we've also got, it's our annual um, men's test team of the year, which we took a year off in 2020 just because there wasn't enough test cricket played to, to make it worthwhile. So we've got a panel of 28 writers and pundits who have helped us pick that 11 um, I think we're going to be doing a video separately about that aren't we to kind of talk through the selections and we've also got the the, the female cross format 11 of last year as well uh, and we've got a lovely interview with uh, oh I'm going to give it away but anyway Fawad, Fawad Alam um, which Sajid Sadiq did uh, about his long wait to get back into the Pakistan side and also how happy he was to be in our team of the year which was really really nice genuinely really uh, lovely to see how excited he was by that so he can as of Thursday, you can tell his dad. He was looking forward to telling his dad. He said he was going to wait for the magazine to yeah. come out first. And one 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 panelist one panelist didn't pick Joe Root in their team. Yeah, that's John Hotton. I think he needs to be named <laughs> and shamed for this. Um, Quite right. Yeah, Delib- I, I can only assume he's been deliberately contrary. <laughs> if uh, if Lamb listens to the pod, he can tell his dad uh, today or tomorrow, which is a that's true. Seeing as I've told, yeah, I've told the world. <laughs> oh he can yeah, tell his dad. If, if, yeah, his dad's going to find out. Oh, shit. Right. Shocker. Edit. Edit. Well, edit. well edit. I think I think if Fawad Alam's dad's got one hour thirty five minutes into this body, he's done pretty well. He probably wanted to hear the news from me, <laughs> I imagine anyway. <laughs> um, um yeah, so, what else is in the magazine? Uh, and we've got um I mentioned the Steve Harmison interview that John did, which is really, really nice. Uh my interview with the Parkinson twins, which we had a, a preview of on the pod last week or the week before. Um, in the lead up to the Women's Ashes, Phil's done a kind of uh, compare and contrast piece with with Meg Lanning and Heather Knight speaking to 
to Heather about their relationship in previous battles as they kind of before before they go go at it again. Did you enjoy that? I did. I thought it was very nice. Yeah, well, smashing. Yeah. One of my best, or like just a middling piece. Not one of your best, I right. would say. <laughs> okay, right. Um, but no, it was good. So I mean, they're always good. Oh, thanks, mate. Um, and I like your Danny White interview as well. That was funny. Yeah, great end question. You've got to buy the magazine to get it, but it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and she's funny. She is funny. Uh, and then our columnists have got Lawrence Booth and Andrew Miller tackling um, the, the here and now of, of the Ashes debacle. Mm. Um, and what else have we got? Um, Andy Zaltzman doing his numbers. <laughs> <laughs> what number is it this time? 52, 52 which okay. was the issue. But I don't know if he knew that. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. Bradman's tests uh, numbers. Number, number of know, test matches he number played. Number of tests, yeah. yeah. And all the rest of it. Excellent. Um, what, what else, Joe? P- Peter Oborn. Peter Oborn, the brilliant, celebrated. Why are you laughing? It's the way you said it. It's the way you said it. It wasn't the name I was next expecting you to say. Well, I think Peter Oborn's an absolute legend, institution uh, of, and a man of letters and all the rest of it. He's brilliant. Anyway, he, he wrote about the year that he fell in love with cricket. Yeah, for for the My Golden Summer uh, series, nineteen sixty six was his was his moment, uh, and he writes it with with typical class um, and elegance. And it was a bit of a coup to get the bloke in, actually, because you know there there are writers, and then there's someone like him. And uh, Jim Wallace interviewed the gaffer Alex Stewart, who, who told Jim about his, his life in cricket, which starts with him saying he wished it was, it was a life in football rather than life in cricket. That was his, <laughs> that was the, that was the dream. Chelsea fan, right? I think is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I've mentioned yeah. it once or you twice might in the past. It. Um, so that's a nice one as well. Yeah, loads in there. Awesome. Um, as always, you can you can get the magazine from wizard.com forward slash shop. And um, we had one email in from a listener uh, Z who asked, what, "Why why is there more coverage about the under nineteen World Cup um, even after England beating the defending champions?" which they did do yesterday, the bold Bangladesh out for, for 97, I think, 97 or 98. Uh, the top scorer for Bangladesh was their number 11, who scored 33. Mm. Um, and then England won that by seven wickets. So that's a very good start to their campaign. And Ben, you were saying that because New Zealand aren't in the World Cup because of uh, they basically decided that it was their, I mean, their minors, their teams, that would, they would be forced to spend too much time in isolation period, both sides. They're not actually in the World Cup. So England's group is basically the weakest ones having beaten Bangladesh they're in pole position to qualify um, so they're they're basically already through off the one game yeah although it's now quite actually quite a soft bubble out there because basically everyone agreed that it would be too much to put the, the kids mm. through that and now they're all kind of relatively free so yeah um, but I guess they'd have to isolate when they get back mm. but yeah in England uh, future's bright for English cricket I guess mm. is a, um, that's it <laughs> Don't pretty worry. buoyant around Don't here. Don't worry, folks. It's fine. <laughs> uh, right. Cheers for getting getting through this, guys. Well done, Ben. Well done, Joe. Well done, Phil. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast, and we'll be back next week where we'll be talking about some white ball cricket and the women's ashes. Cheers. Podcast Network.